0: The following message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. First Corinthians chapter nine, and we're going to um, start reading in verse nineteen. Even though um, we covered this last week, it's, it's helpful for us in picking up the context. So Paul says, For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all that I may win more. To the Jews I became as a Jew so that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law under the law, though not being under myself under the law so that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without laws, without law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those who are without law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I become all things to all men, so that I may by all means save some. I do all things for the sake of the gospel, so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run? but only one receives the prize. Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I discipline my body and make it my slave. So that after I've preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Some passages are just ripe for misunderstanding, misinterpretation, misguided application. And this is just one of those texts, verses 24 to 27. So let me just get this out of the way up front. This passage, verses 24 to 27, is not about Christian CrossFit. It's not even about going to the gym or joining a boxing club or running on the treadmill. All right? Um, But this text is also not about... Paul being afraid that he's going to lose his salvation, right? This passage is not about Paul wondering whether or not he's going to make it. But I also want to say, neither is this text simply about Paul losing some kind of reward. This passage is a warning, And it is a warning to the Corinthians, and it's a warning to us, and it is a warning in which Paul is not afraid to use himself as an example. And so, last week, we didn't quite finish verse 23, which which actually ends up being a good thing because verse 23 has a very tight connection, even though it's somewhat separated in our text, Greek text starts a new paragraph. Um, verse 23 ends up being connected to 24 to 27, and the connection is absolutely crucial. So if you just take a look at verse 22 again, Paul is kind of working his way down in his argument. So to the weak, I became weak. We talked about how that's different than the other categories that he mentions previously, that I might win the week. And then, then he makes this, this um, principial type statement, this umbrella-type statement. He says, I have become all things to all men so that I may, by all means, save some. And obviously, when Paul says, I become all things to all men... He's not saying that in an unrestricted or unqualified way, right? He's not saying, um, for me, anything goes as long as I'm able to get the gospel in. That is, that is not Paul's missional attitude, okay? The, <laughs> that's the N-word, by the way. So, Paul is not saying, you know, I mean, you know, obviously... You know, to the drunkards, I became a drunkard so that I might win drunkards. To the pot smokers, I became a pot smoker so that I could win pot smokers. You know, Um, and you could go on and become even more absurd than that. Although there are people who take this passage and do that very thing with it. I've seen an article this week. I'm not even going to tell you what it was about, um, but it was a couple engaging in, the, in, in, in awful, immoral behavior for the sake of sharing the gospel. Okay? That is not what Paul's talking about. He is saying, you, you, could, you could almost translate the second part something like this, I have become all these things that I've just mentioned. Right? I've become all of these kinds of things so that I might win by all means all the more. And, uh, and of course, he doesn't say win in, in verse uh, 22. He says save. Of course, save is just consistent with his use of the word win throughout the context. Um, and, and, again, I'll just mention this from from last week paul uh, paul doesn 't get some sort of theological uh, apoplexy or theological Charlie horse or theological um, you know brain freeze and when, when he says that I might save some because he 's not talking about he himself as the savior he 's talking simply about he himself as being the instrument through which God saves people, right, but he has no problem actually saying. So that I might save the more, right? And, um, and so anyway, Paul says, and, and I do, and this is, this is where we left off, verse 23. I do all things for the sake of the gospel so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. So that little phrase, because of the gospel. So I do all things because of the gospel, it is, is for the progress of the gospel and the promulgation of the gospel and the preaching of the gospel, the spread of the gospel. So for Paul, what he's basically getting to in this text is that the gospel is so valuable, it's so important, it's the most important thing. And Paul's willing to do Whatever it takes in order, one, not to be a hindrance to the gospel, but then two, to make sure that the gospel makes progress with those around him. And so for Paul, this is, this is the driving force of his life. There's nothing more important to him than the gospel. So eating food sacrificed to idols in a temple is not more important to him than the gospel. In other words, his own view of his own personal rights is not more important than the gospel it 's the gospel that trumps absolutely everything it 's the gospel that drives him, and then he says he says, "I do all things." Now again, we might uh, qualify it as all these things, which is, which is in all likelihood true, but, but just think about. What Paul went through for the sake of the gospel. So I do all things for the sake of the gospel. You could say, I make unbelievably arduous, physically taxing journeys for the sake of the gospel. I face opposition for the sake of the gospel. I face persecution for the sake of the gospel. I will take a beating for the sake of the gospel. <laughs> you know, we, we don't really know anything about, about this. We really don't. We think persecution is when somebody at the workplace tells us that our scripture memory calendar needs to come off of our desk and we freak out because we think we're being persecuted. We don't know anything about taking a beating for the sake of the gospel. Paul knew all about taking a beating, and he was more than willing to take a beating for the sake of the gospel. He was willing to endure hardships for the sake of the gospel. He was willing to go without for the sake of the gospel. He was willing to endure all things for the sake of the elect so that they too may obtain eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord, and so for Paul, this, this idea was, I'm willing to face any danger for the sake of the gospel. G- get on a ship and face shipwreck for the sake of the gospel. Sure. Flogged 39 times by the Jews three times for the sake of the gospel. Sure. Stoned and left for dead in Lystra? Sure, for the sake of the gospel. And what we start to realize is that Paul's idea of sacrifice for the sake of the gospel makes us look unbelievably wimpy. We'll wimp out on conversations because we think somebody might ask us a hard question. Paul says, I'll do anything for the gospel. go to prison for the gospel. And he did. In fact, I'll die for the gospel. And he did. And so this isn't Paul being some sort of culturally hip dude that... uh, You know, I'll wear skinny jeans for the sake of the gospel. No, I'll take a beating for the sake of the gospel. I'll get a little frohawk for the sake of the gospel. No, I'll get thrown in prison. My apologies to all you with frohawks, but I know you're not doing it for the gospel. Paul says, I'm just willing to do it all. And then notice what the next phrase says. This, this, is, this is one of those passages that the way that we understand what Paul says here is going to determine the way that we understand what he's saying in 24 to 27. He says, I do all these things because of the gospel, and then notice the next phrase, in order that I might become a fellow partaker of it. Okay. So, so you have to understand, Paul says, I'm willing to do whatever it takes. I'm willing to take whatever beating. I'm willing to go to prison. I'm willing to whatever. Whatever. And, and the reason I am more than willing to do that is so that I can become a fellow partaker of the gospel. So then here is, here is this, this huge Question, what does Paul mean a fellow partaker of the gospel? Now, some some think that Paul's talking about um, end up getting paid from preaching the gospel. That is absolutely not even on Paul's radar at this point, right? I'm willing to get beat to a pulp so that I can get an honorarium. No, that's not what Paul's saying. Neither is Paul saying... That um, uh, I do all these things for the gospel so that I might participate um, in, in the sense of maybe um, partake of some of the benefits. Maybe non-monetary, but, but maybe other kinds of benefits. And I don't think that's in view either. All right. So, so this is what I want to offer up to you. And if you don't like it right now, just wait because you will by the time we're done. At least I hope you will, all right? So when Paul says that I might become a fellow participant, a fellow partaker of the gospel, I believe that what Paul is actually talking about is that I may, the reason I do all of that is because I want to be, I want to savingly participate in the gospel. Okay. I want to benefit salvifically from the gospel. I take all of this that God puts in front of me. And I take it with a seriousness and a determination. Because at the end of the day, I want to partake of the the final salvation, blessing of the gospel. You say, well, why do you say that? Well, first of all, to me it makes the most sense. There's no other way to look at fellow partaker of the gospel in light of all the things that Paul endures. Okay, What does he say in in chapter 9, verse 16? Woe is me if i don't preach the gospel right remember that we just saw it week before last woe is me if i don't preach the gospel what is woe anybody remember woe not wow woe it is a Declaration of self condemnation, or it is a declaration of uh, an oracle of woe, which is an oracle of judgment. Okay, uh, woe is never good. Okay, when when you say woe, it is a declaration of judgment. So Paul says, "Woe is me." Think about. I mean, think about what Paul's actually saying. Woe is me. That the, the judgment of God be upon me if I don't preach the gospel. He's not just saying um, how unlucky I'd be if I didn't preach the gospel, or he's not even saying, um, uh, "Oh." The, the, the rewards that I would lose if I didn't preach the gospel. Woe is me is really, really strong stuff. And the reason that Paul can say that is because for Paul, his ministry and his life in Christ are so integrated and so intertwined that they're wrapped up into one. So, for instance, when Paul's giving an account of, of his life to the Ephesian elders in, in Acts chapter 20, he says these words. He says, But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself. You got that? I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. Paul says, you know what? When you boil my life down, you know what my life is? My life is, is nothing. My life is nothing except this, to finish the course that Jesus gave me, to fulfill the ministry that Jesus gave me. My life doesn't mean anything outside of that. In fact, the biggest, most important thing in my life is not that I'm looking forward to retirement, but Jesus has given me a course and a ministry to fulfill and my life is nothing. The only thing that really matters is that I finish that course. Paul took the idea of his conversion and his calling that they were, they were an integrated whole. He couldn't think of one without the other. Thus, woe is me if if I don't preach the gospel and I'm willing to do whatever it takes to proclaim the gospel for the sake of the gospel so that I may end up being a partaker of the blessings that I tell everybody else about. Richard Baxter, in his um, classic work, The Reformed Pastor, and by that he didn't mean theologically reformed, he meant the renewed pastor, makes this, this comment right in the opening. So uh, Baxter had been invited to preach at a, at a minister's conference, and he got very sick. He was, he was sick a lot, and so he couldn't go, so he wrote out his lectures to be read to these guys. Today we just Skype him from his hospital bed or whatever. But he wrote, and so what we have is the Reformed pastor Baxter has this opening section where he's, he's pressing upon pastors to make sure that, they're, that they truly know the Lord, that they're truly saved. And he says, can you imagine the horror, the shame of preaching the eternal blessings of salvation in Jesus Christ to others and then miss out on them yourself? And so for Paul, I think that when he says that I might become a partaker of it, he's talking about that I might savingly partake of the gospel that I proclaim. Now, remember what Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 16. He says, pay close attention or watch yourself and your doctrine. Watch yourself and your doctrine. Pay close attention to both. And in so doing, you will secure salvation for those who hear you and for yourself. Now, once again, Paul's language is a little more bold in the Greek text than than what the NAS conveys. Because the NAS says secure or ensure salvation for yourself and for those who hear you. Paul just says in order that you may save yourself and those who hear you, <laughs> right? Again, that same kind of language, and, and 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 we have to say it because Paul didn't believe that he was the savior of anybody, but he could talk in such a way that, that, that it was bold because of what was at stake, right? He was bold because of what was at stake. The, there, there's something else in this in verse 23 that makes me think he's talking about savingly partaking of the gospel, and that is verses 23 and 27 parallel each other. He talks about being a fellow partaker in verse 23, and then he talks about being um, a a castaway in verse 27. So a fellow partaker is the exact opposite of one who's cast away. All right? So for Paul, you've you've got two two uh, options in front of you, you're either going to be a partaker of it or you're going to be a castaway, all right? So we'll we'll come back to this when we get to um, verse 27. All right, verse 24. So then this is Paul's conclusion. It's a great passage, it's a great passage. He says, do you not know that those running in the race... All run. So, literally, do you not know those running in the arena? It's a figure of speech using the place for the event. And when he says, do you not know that all those in the arena are running, um, the Corinthians would have said, of course we know that. The Isthmian Games are 10 miles away from us every two years, and it is a huge deal. By the way, the Isthmian Games, which were only 10 miles outside of Corinth, were far bigger than the Olympian Games. The Olympian games were, in fact, held every four years. It was the Isthmian games, though, that actually got the most attention. And there, and in fact, Paul would have been, he was in Corinth for 18 months, which means very possible that Paul could have witnessed some of the Isthmian games. All right? And so Paul makes a comment here that, that this is where the people were. They understood what he was talking about. He says, Do you not know? And of course they knew everyone running. Okay. Now, now Paul's talking about actually those that are involved in the foot races. Okay. Everyone running. But for Paul, running is is also a metaphor that he uses all the time. Right? So we're gonna we're gonna check our. Our, our ministry with the apostles in Jerusalem to make sure that we hadn't run in vain, right, the run in vain. Um, Paul could say to the Galatians, you were running well, who hindered you, right, this this kind of language. And so the idea of running is to make an effort, this is from uh, Bauer, Art and Gingrich, to make an effort to advance spiritually or intellectually to exert oneself, right, so Paul says, "Don't you know that everybody who's actually there in the arena and and, and, the, and that are running, they're supposed to be running to do what? To, to win. So everybody's supposed to be running. If you're in the race, you're supposed to be running. This probably needs to be emphasized for us today because uh, a person may get a bug. You know, that get. You know, wow, I'm gonna I'm gonna get in shape, right?" You ever say this to yourself? I'm going to get in shape. And so then you go down to Shields and you buy $160 running shoes and then you buy socks, running socks that are $12 a piece and you buy like all the different colors. So you've got, you know, 100 bucks in running socks and then you go over and you look for just like the best Under Armour cold gear since it's winter and so you've plunk down another 150 bucks and then you get the just the nicest uh, jacket, the best pullover, it wicks the sweat off of your body. It's absolutely amazing. And and you walk out of there having spent $500 on all this equipment and you put it on and you're man, man, I look good. I look too good to start sweating. See this is this is sort of evangelicalism we 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 get all the gear and put all the gear on but nobody ever gets to running right Paul says Don't you know you're supposed to be running? If you're inside the arena, if you're there as a runner, guess what you're supposed to be doing? You're supposed to be running. It isn't enough just to get the gear. you got to actually sweat. And then Paul makes this up. Don't you know also that there's only one who wins the prize? Now, let me just say the analogy breaks down if you try to push it too far because what Paul is not saying is we're all in this race and we're competing against each other and I'm pretty sure I can beat Arnie in a foot race. Most of you know I did a half marathon about seven years ago or so. It was a trail marathon. Okay. Carrie Grabo was there. I knew I didn't have a chance to beat Carrie. Harmony Hildebrand was there. Her bones are hollow. Didn't have a chance to beat her either. Um, and then, of course, Chad Elliott, who barely trained, was there. And he, I wasn't going to be able to beat him. But I knew I had a chance to beat Paul Manzano. And I did, I beat him good, right, so you know, so I had no illusion whatsoever that I was going to win this thing. in fact, the last uh, at, at, at the eleventh mile, it starts to go uphill, and i 'm dying. my legs are are cramped in both legs and um, And this is no joke. A guy with one leg passes me, and then <laughs> And then a guy that was is, that was probably older than Vic passed me, and I'm like, uh, "Just keep going, just keep going, just, just bury the shame," you know. And um, but I had no illusion that I was going to run to win. But Paul says, "You know what? If you're in the race, you've got to be intentional. You're in the race, and you're in the race to win it. You're in the race, not just to hobble across the finish line. You're in the race." To win. And so he says, thus run in order to win. Thus run in order to, literally, he says, thus run in order to attain. That's what he says. Attain what? Attain the prize. And so um, David Garland, he says this. <laughs> this was really good. He says, they cannot amble nonchalantly around the track. And expect some kind of trophy simply for participation. They're to run as if their life depended on it. Because it does. Right? Is this not a message that we need to hear today in, in a culture where, where everybody gets a trophy because you just were there? Paul says it's not, that's not how it works. You have to run to win. And then he says in verse 25... He talks about the prize he talks about the, first of all the necessity of self-control. He says everyone competing exercises self-control in all things. Competing, by the way, is a great 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 Greek word agonizomai, right? Agonizomai and the word itself is can sometimes be used in, in as a fight or a wrestling match a struggle, some sort of contest. And so Paul says, everyone competing, everybody who's in this struggle does what? Exercises self-control in all things. So self-control now ends up being used by Paul as an illustration, or I should say the illustration is the athletic self-discipline that all Christians must exercise as they run the race. And so when Paul says they exercise self-control in all things, the um, the games in Paul's day were incredibly strict, incredibly strict. And you could be disqualified if you were participating in the game, in the race, and there was just a minor violation of one of the rules. Didn't matter what it was. You would be excluded from the race. Gone. Furthermore, there were certain rules that related to training. You violated the rules during the training, which was typically a nine to ten month period. You, You violate any of those rules, you're disqualified from even running the race. And so Paul says, These people that are actually out there running and and in that race, they are doing this, exercising self-control in absolutely everything, which meant um, what they ate, what they put into their bodies, how hard they trained, every facet of life. And here's, here's the point. Every facet of life was lived... Through the lens of how does this affect my ability to perform once the race gets here. That was the point. Th- there, there was no like cheating Saturday. You know what cheating Saturday is. You, you go on a diet and then on Saturday you, you go to Applebee's. And eat whatever you want. Right? So it's just one day in seven. Okay? Paul says there was no cheating days they exercised a self-control and a self-discipline in every facet of their life. And then Paul turns around and, and he says, And <laughs> they did it for its imperishable reef." Now, you have to understand, when Paul's talking at this point about self-control... The way that that applies to the Corinthians right there is you need to exercise self-control by foregoing some of these so-called rights of yours for the sake of other people. That's how you exercise self-control. You're supposed to exercise that self-control for the good of others. And, And so Paul looks at the Corinthians, and the Corinthians were in danger on a number of fronts, right? Not the least of which was their insistence... of having their rights to eat in a pagan temple. And when Paul says this, exercise self-control in all things, he's not advocating some sort of asceticism, right? He's not advocating going out and starving yourself. He's not advocating going out and and beating yourself, flogging yourself, you know, like Luther used to do. But he is saying that discipline and self-control for the sake of others is, is vitally important. As you run this race. He says these on the one hand. Do it in order to obtain. A perishable wreath. Now. What's kind of funny about this is. Different games. Had different. Wreaths. Right? Just a little, little crown. So what do we do in the Olympics? Medals. Yeah. That wasn't hard. <laughs> Do you know what they're made of? Gold, silver, and bronze, right? Okay. That would have been awesome compared to what these guys got. Okay, So, for instance, in some games, they received uh, a laurel wreath that lasted a little while. In the Isthmian games, they received... Celery wreaths. But not just celery wreaths. Withered celery wreaths. So there you are on the winner's block. And you bend over and the guy's like, you know, it's falling apart. And he sticks it on your head and you stand there with... Wilted celery around your head, right? Now, there was a reason why it was wilted or withered celery. It was to actually underscore the fact that it wasn't about the prize. It was about the honor of having accomplished what you just did. In fact, Lucian, who's a Roman historian, he's writing about this, and um, He says, My dear fellow, it's not the bare gifts we have in view. They're merely tokens of our victory and marks to identify winners. But the reputation that goes with them is worth everything to the victors, and to attain it, even to be kicked, is nothing to men who seek to capture fame through hardships. Without the hardships, it cannot be acquired. The man who covets it must put up with much unpleasantness in the beginning. Before at last, he can expect the profitable and delightful outcome of all of his exertions. It's not about the prize. It's about the reputation. It's about the accomplishment. Paul says, they do their thing. They they go through this incredible rigor in order to get a wreath that's perishable. And by the way, even the idea of the reputation ends up being perishable, right? What happens to Olympic records all the time? They get broken, they get smashed, right? So there you are, an old man in your walker and you got your grandkids around you and you go, "I was the 440 champion, gold gold medal winner in 1976." "What was your time, grandpa?" <laughs> you think that was good? I can do that. Right? So it's all perishable. It doesn't matter. It doesn't last. Paul then turns around and says, what they do, incredible rigor, incredible discipline, what they do, they do for stuff that just fades away. We do what we do for an imperishable prize, wreath. He doesn't actually finish. He just says, they do it to attain a perishable wreath, but we, imperishable. And so what what is Paul talking about here what is this imperishable crown i take this by the way i take this to mean not and i know this is hard for some of us because we were we were brought up in a certain theological context where, where this was just sort of the, 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 the main staple diet of the Christian life. I don't think when Paul says we do it for an imperishable wreath, that what he means is that we do what we do for a, that a boy on the judgment day. Or you get to drive a mercedes in the millennium i don't think that's paul's point at all in fact when he says imperishable he's not talking about some sort of some sort of reward he's talking about life itself he's talking about salvation itself now do i think there's rewards in the eternal state? And the answer is, yeah, I think there, I think there are. But, but so often in the New Testament, what is being spoken of that we think of as some sort of uh, status of reward, a crown of righteousness or a, the crown of life, actually is just describing eternal life. The crown which is life. The crown which is righteousness. And so for Paul, he says, you know, we do what we do because, because there, is, there is this imperishable prize that is set in front of us. And, and it's not just a pat on the head and, and, and some sort of neat uh, reward in the eternal state. It is, it, is the, it is the eschatological victory of Christ himself being given to us in the fullness of salvation. And Paul says in verse 26, Therefore, I run, though not aimlessly, or uncertainly. Paul starts to use himself as an example again. By the way, um, Eight thirteen. So, if causing if meat causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again. So, he uses himself as an example. Eleven one. Therefore, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Now, what Paul's doing is so I've just told you you got to run and you got to run to win, and I run. So he's now using himself as an example, and he says, "I run." As not aimlessly. You know, if you've ever done a five K or a ten K or a marathon, there's a nightmare, and that is you get off the track. And you take a turn where there's not supposed to be a turn or you go straight where they're supposed to turn. And then you think you're winning. But actually you're heading east and the finish line is west. Right? Stuff like that happens. Right? Paul says, I don't get out there and just like run around in circles. I don't get out there and and say, okay, I'll run to the end of this street really fast. No, 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 no. Now where am I going to go? Okay, I'll go down this way. Paul does not run like that. For Paul, there was a goal. So when he says, therefore I don't run as uncertainly or aimlessly, he says, when I run, I don't lose sight of the finish line. The idea of running aimlessly is there's no fixed goal. Then he says, and when I box, I don't box as if I'm just beating the air. Now, there's, there's, there's two, two possibilities for the image here. The first is that he's just an ineffective boxer. When I grew up, when I was growing up, boxing next to baseball, boxing was my favorite sport. I loved boxing. I'd watch boxing with my dad all the time. We'd go down to Memorial Auditorium in downtown Sacramento and watch welterweight fights, Pete Ranzani and Little Red Lopez. And man, we had that was just the best. I loved, I loved boxing. And if you think boxing is unChristian, then I just say, read your Bible. Okay, now. Um, so, you ever watch one of these? Okay, so classic fight George Foreman and Muhammad Ali. Okay? I liked George Foreman. I did not like Muhammad Ali. Okay? I love big George Foreman. And he could hit hard. But do you know what would take more energy out of him than anything else? That is throwing a big punch. And not hitting anything. That'd just wear you out. Right? And of course, that was his That was the game plan, right? But Paul says, I'm not the kind of boxer who just throws these haymakers and and I never I never hit what I'm aiming at. Or or he could be talking about shadow boxing. Okay? Now shadow boxing is is actually a part of a boxer's training but when he gets into the ring for the real fight what would you think of somebody who gets in and there's the guy his opponent standing in the middle of the ring waiting to trade punches with him and this guy's just like flittering around shadow boxing like what are you doing are you not interested in winning are you not interested in engaging And so Paul says, I don't run as if I have no goal and I don't get into the ring and box and and throw big misses or turn around and and shadow box and not ever punch my opponent. Then he says, but I, what does your Bible say? Verse 27, discipline, discipline, What's that? Discipline my, Discipline my body. ESV? Discipline? Somebody has a 1977 New American Standard. That w- very unfortunate. I buffet my body. The reason why this is so unbelievably unfortunate is because we read that as I buffet my body. And we think, hurrah, golden corral time. Okay? And that's not exactly what Paul's talking about. When Paul says, I discipline my body, okay, that's okay. But the word is stronger than that. I beat my body. Um, literally, the word means to blacken an eye or to punch in the face or to bring somebody into submission put under strict discipline or to treat roughly right so you got this one i mean this is this is tough stuff okay this isn't pedicure time this is bloody knuckle time and the object of me punching is me now again, Paul's not talking about somehow, uh, you know, flagellating himself with a cat of nine tails or something like that. But the picture is is that the, I take the training so seriously that that I end up beating up my own body. Right? This is, you know, when 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 you get when you get older and you exercise you kind of feel like you're just beating yourself up, right? At least some of us. You go, why am I doing this to myself, (laughs) right? You know, the next day you're sore and your back hurts and it's hard to get out of bed. And Paul says, you know what? He says, "I, I go through all the rigors because I'm in training. And so I beat my body I make my body black and blue, as it were. He's speaking metaphorically. Don't take this literally. Okay. And then he says, and I enslave it. In other words, what Paul's saying is that, is that I take my body and, 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 and I actually bring it into subjection. And the reason that I bring my body into subjection is not because my body's evil, but I bring my body into subjection as a matter of self-discipline so that when it comes time to run the race, I run to win. By the way, there's no view in the Scripture that the body is evil. The flesh is bad, but the flesh is not equivalent to the body. This body one of these days will be redeemed... But this body also, the members of this body can be the playground for the flesh. And so Paul says, I take, I take this whole Christian race so seriously that I'm willing to subject my body to enslavement. In other words, I don't let my body just do what my body wants to do. Listen, young people, you don't have to just let your body do what your body thinks it wants to do. By the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, subject your body to the lordship of Jesus. Not the lordship of your lust. And so Paul says, I subject my body, I put it into submission. He'll say in First Timothy 4, 7, bodily exercise is of little value, but spiritual discipline, right? Godliness has value for this life and the life to come. And then Paul says this, and this is the troubling part. Lest after, pre- after having preached to others... I myself should be. I'm going to tell you what the word is, instead of translating it. It's "ah, dachimas." Ah, dachimas. This is a word that's used in all kinds of contexts. It is. Um, it is an assessment word. It is okay. So those of you who like gold and and mining and stuff, it is an assayer word. So docymos is approved, proven, true, genuine. Ah docymos has the idea of not standing up to the test or not passing the test or unqualified or unfit or counterfeit. So docimos is that which is tested and proven to be true. A dokimos is that which is rejected because it's not true. Okay? Now, Paul uses this word, and he uses this word a number of times. 2 Corinthians 13, but examine yourself, see if you're in the faith. Unless... You fail the test unless you be a dachimas, right? That's so. This is this is a weighty word. This is this is not. Um, so uh, so. Uh, last summer, Alex is doing the long drive competition down in Mesquite, and he's nervous. And he goes up, it's his turn, they call his name, and he goes up and he grabs one of the drivers out of his bag, he's got a like half a dozen drivers, he dra- grabs the driver, and you have to hit so many balls in a period of time, and he gets up there, and he drives the first ball, and the guy that's watching says, you're disqualified, you used uh, an illegal club. Right? Just like that. He, he didn't pay attention to what club? I'm like, why would you even have the club in that that club in that bag anyway, you dodo? Okay, but anyway, beside the point. So, when Paul says a dachymos, he's not just saying the guy goes, oh, disqualified. Okay, you have to wait till the next round. A dachymos is a word of incredible weightiness. And so, in the games, people could be dq right, disqualified if you broke the rules of the race or violated the rules during the training. And so Paul says, so I, I subject my body, make it my slave, so that, so that, after having preached to others, I myself would not be a documos. Now, some of your Bibles will say different things. Disqualified is the way... That the New American Standard does it? What's ESV do? Disqualified. Okay, this has troubled this has troubled people for such a long time that in the Geneva Bible, all right, so our the the, the Scottish Reformed Calvinistic Bible of the time of the Reformation, they say, "Lest I be reproved." Okay. It's, it's bad. That's not right. Okay. It's not right. It is stronger. Than that, so here's the question. So, anybody have the King James? What is it? No, no, no. The last word in twenty-seven. Castaway. castaway. Is that was? Is, is that was? Okay, King James has castaway. Okay. That's actually better. Yeah, old King James. New King James probably got all fancy and modern. Castaway. So after preaching to others, I myself not be a castaway. Okay. Rejected. 23, partaker, fellow partner, or castaway. Now, here's, here's the question. I'll try to do this in six minutes. Of course, impossible. How or why does Paul fear he may be a castaway? Expositors jump to conclusions about verse 27, and they normally do two things. One, most common, Paul's afraid that he's going to lose his reward or lose his apostleship. That's what he's afraid of. So the adimos is that he loses reward or, or apostleship. By the way, this is the position that's most often taken by those who are trying hard to show that this means that Paul, that this does not mean that Paul thinks he can lose his salvation. Okay. Well, the other conclusion that commentators jump to in verse 27. Is Paul's afraid he'll lose his salvation. So you have, on the one hand, people that say, Well, Paul can't be afraid he's going to lose his salvation, so he must be talking about losing reward or losing apostleship. And then other people say, No, castaway is pretty strong. If Paul's afraid he's going to lose his salvation. Well, let me let, let me let me try to do this for you in, in a way that I hope compels you or convinces you. How about this? First of all, Paul is absolutely confident. In the faithfulness of God, to him and to all who believe, all the way to the end, first Corinthians one eight and nine, okay, right? was Paul confident in the faithfulness of God? Absolutely, at the end of the day, did Paul realize that 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 his life and his his labors, all of it was was really in the hands of a God who would, as we're going to sing this weekend, hold him fast, yeah, absolutely, right. So, on the one hand, I don't want to take anything away from Paul's confidence that the one who called me into fellowship with his son is faithful and he will keep me to the end, right? That is is one of Paul's themes. And if you're a Christian, you should take great comfort in knowing that he holds you, okay? Secondly... Paul takes warnings seriously. Paul takes warnings seriously. Our our burden in handling the Scriptures is not trying to figure out how our own theological presuppositions can negate what a passage probably means. That's That's not an option for us. Our responsibility is to take the whole of Scripture to do our best to see the way that it fits together. And so on the one hand, Paul absolutely wholeheartedly believes in the precious and magnificent promises that God will keep his own to the end because he's faithful and because Christ's love is unbreakable. Okay? But that does not mean, listen, that does not mean that he doesn't take the warnings seriously. Because the minute that you say, well, because that is true, therefore the warnings must really not be warnings, then at that point you're not being consistent or faithful with what the Scripture says. Your theology might be nice, neat, and tidy, but you're not being faithful with the whole spectrum of the Word of God. And so Paul takes the warnings seriously. So faithfully running to the end by God's grace and faithfulness is the only way to cross the finish line and you must cross the finish line. Do you believe that both of these statements are true? I will cross the finish line. I must cross the finish line. Both of those things are true. Okay? It's not since I'll cross the finish line, I'll go hang out over in the bleachers and talk to cheerleaders. I will finish, I must finish. Those are the two sides, by the way, to the perseverance of the saints. The one side is the preservation of the saints. The other side is that the saints persevere in faith and good works. So what does the warning do? The warning, we went through this in Hebrews 102 times, 181 times. The warning does what? The warning keeps me running. You understand? The warning keeps me running. So for Paul, the warning kept him running. Lest I myself be a castaway. So you know what I do? In light of the fact that I don't want that to happen, I keep running. And I keep running to win. And when I start to feel lazy, and when I start to feel apathetic, and when I start to feel as if uh, I don't really care anymore, then you know what? I I think of the warnings. When I start to despair and wonder if I'm going to finish, I don't look at the warnings. I look at the promises. The promises and the warnings keep you on the course to keep running. The warnings keep you from presumption. The promises keep you from despair really this is this is not actually that hard of a concept and so any any view that only emphasizes one or the other at the expense of the other is actually not doing justice to the text or the scriptures as a whole and is also then robbing the people of god of good gospel motivation to keep running so to take a warning seriously doesn't mean that one concludes, oh, I must be able to lose my salvation. That's not the conclusion. Spurgeon, by the way, in, 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 a, in a sermon on, on Hebrews 6, has a this great illustration of this. He says, imagine that you're sitting there at, the, at a friend's table, and there's a bottle, and on that bottle, it's, it's arsenic, and that bottle has a skull and crossbones on it and says poison and your friend says if you drink this you'll die is that a true statement yes does it assume i'm going to drink it no the whole function of the skull crossbones poison warning and a friend saying if you drink this you'll die is what what does it do it keeps me from drinking it Right? That's what the warnings do. They're real warnings, but they actually are warnings that I take to heart that that they don't make me think, oh my goodness, look at that. If Paul was afraid he was going to be a castaway, what hope do I have? I'm sure I'll probably not even make it to heaven. That's not the conclusion. The conclusion is the same as Paul's. Take heed of the warning. Keep running then. Finally, Paul realizes that the one who lives for himself, instead of taking their faith seriously, that life will end in disaster. So for the person that is simply, whether they profess faith or not, the person who simply lives for themselves and refuses to take their faith seriously, their life will end in disaster. Paul realizes that those who live in total disregard to others are not only a danger to others, they're a danger to themselves. And so the Christian life is more serious than training for the Olympics. It requires focus. Determination, perseverance, and a conscious dependence upon the grace of Christ every single day. The Christian life is not just about determination, but it is about determination. And so we pray things like this. Lord, forgive me for my lack of determination. By your grace, help me to be determined. Lord, forgive me for my lack of focus. By your grace, help me to set my sight on the goal, on the finish line, on the prize. Lord give me the grace to persevere because I know just like our brother Rick today as he in the language of Bunyan as he crossed over that river the only reason that happened was because Jesus preserved Rick all the way to the end Lord Give me the grace to persevere, which means preserve me, keep me, pray for me that my faith would not fail. When you and I get to the end, and we get to the end believing, we get to the end running, In God's kindness, you may hear these words. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. And there will be something in your heart that does not say, yeah, that was well done. The only thing that will be reverberating in our hearts will be thanks be to God for His wonderful grace by which I've entered into His rest and received the reward. And so, the Christian life is it filled with peace? You better believe it. Is it war? You better believe it. And so don't meander. Don't run around in circles. Get serious about the race. Get serious about the fight. And take the warning seriously. And may they drive you to the grace and mercy of God in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for hard passages. Passages that make us think and pray and look to you. And we pray tonight, Father, that you would help us each one of us that calls upon your name to run that race to win. Father, for those that have been distracted and gotten off into bypass meadows, we pray that you'd lay hold of them tonight and drag them back to the track. Father, for those that are running and feel tired, we ask that you would renew their strength, that they would mount up with wings like eagles that they would run and not be weary father we pray even tonight remind us of the of the contest and keep us faithful to the glory and the honor and the praise of your great name amen